Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the programme. We really do appreciate it. Um, if you're not already subscribed, please do so and uh, give us a rating in whatever podcast platform you use. Um, this week on the programme, we're going to look at the future of commuting, the future of transport uh, with Marcus Enoch and try and figure out whether or not we're ever going to get that 1950s vision of flying cars and clean, perfect transport that does exactly what you want it to do. We get to all of your comments in the end of the podcast. If you have something that you want to share with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. Maybe it's a story. Maybe it's a complaint. Maybe it's a, a criticism or a suggestion. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We're going to kick off the show, as we always do, looking back at the week's science news. And joining us uh, is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Laura Duncan. You're both very welcome. Shane, our first story is, once again about the climate. Yeah, um, it's sort of like old news, but re- redone. And it's it's really important. But I actually struggle now to report these on the show because they're continuous. Mm. They say the same thing. And I thought what might be helpful here, it's about climate. And unsurprisingly, it's, it's saying things are very bad. And I was talking about what makes science trustworthy with a colleague. And she was talking about understanding that the breadth of consensus that's involved is really important. And so this is a this is a report by United in Science. And um, that's a group that involves the World Meteorological Organization, the UN Environmental Programme, the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, Global Carbon Project, the UK Met Office, and Urban um, Climate Change Research Network. So they're really um, like big and hard hitting. And they're saying that government and business are failing to change fast enough for uh, for climate change and that weather is becoming increasingly extreme and that we can't call these things natural disasters anymore that are occurring. They are climate um, induced disasters. Um, the, re- the report is, is tough reading because it's saying things like the past seven years have been the hottest on record. The global mean um, temperatures are forecast to be 1.1 to 1.7 degrees higher than pre-industrial levels but crucially within the next with between this year and 2026 this is not sort of talking about you know when our grandchildren are are adults they're, they're talking about now um they're saying that there's a 93 percent chance that one uh, in five of the next five years will be the hottest on record they're saying the dip in um um carbon dioxide associated with COVID was completely temporary. They're saying that the pledges of um, governments to reduce greenhouse gases are not sufficient to hold warming to 1.5 degrees. And they're saying that um, climate related disasters are costing the world staggering $200 million uh, or euros per day, that half of the planet's population is now living in areas that are highly vulnerable to climate change. They're saying as temperature increases, this, this is hard stuff, as temperature increases, <laughs> it is. Um, you know, the likelihood of crossing tipping points can't be ruled out. Um, they include drying the Amazon, melting the ice caps, and crucially for us, weakening the Gulf Stream. Um, and that, that really would be the end of Ireland as we know it, if the Gulf Stream were to be dramatically changed. There is some um, silver lining in in this report, uh, and it's associated with work from Oxford. And it said that shifting the global economy to a low carbon footing 
will save the world a staggering 12 trillion euros between now and 2050. And this is because we see it, we're living through it right now. It's it's increasingly... Disasters um, are expensive. Also, yeah, but fossil fuels are becoming increasingly expensive. Mm. So like if we continue with that and the disasters, exactly, we're, it's just going to cost us more. Have you seen um, Rocky IV, Shane? No, it's one of the epics I've not seen. Tell me yeah. about it, Jonathan. <laughs> Thank you for setting it up so nicely. So um, in, in Rocky IV, there is um, this scene in the beginning where Apollo Creed, this is a spoiler alert, um, but uh, Apollo Creed uh, comes out to a uh, big fanfare wearing the Stars and Stripes and Ivan Drago, this cold Russian um, psychopath, essentially um, beats him to death in the in the movie. And it's a, it's a, it was a real shock because Apollo Creed was a big star of the, the previous movies. Um it sort of feels like we're in that scene at the moment and that and that you just want Ivan Drago to stop punching Apollo Creed. And, and like, I know, you know, this is supposed to be an entertaining show where we, we, you know, we have a bit of crack every once in a while. You just go, there's no, this is what it is. We need to do better. We need to, if whatever influence you have around you, and I, I think really in particularly in business, if you have that influence in government, the individual, um, I think, has less power than 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 the individual's sphere. And I think whatever we can do to encourage greater and more swift change, we need to do because we can't keep doing these stories on the program, and we can't keep going down this road. I'm just going to move on because, like, there's no, there's nothing, there's no, there's no punchline yeah. to that. Um, no, there isn't. No, no but. But I think you're right. I was we, going to say something it. about Apollo Creed there and the punchline, but not because that would make light of what we, we're talking about. We do need each of us to take action. We all of us do, you know. But it's not it, just about recycling and and, do, and, and doing. No, those no, no. It's more no. about. It's, I think. I think that the big power is in the, the influence that you have. If you, you know, if you work in a company, you say this isn't right. If you, if you make something public, and you, you make a big splash with it, then it's awkward. You, you know, the management have to kind example? of go, Ugh. yeah. I, I, I made the point on Twitter recently that uh, way too many people drive to UCD. Uh, so UCD yeah. has uh, almost 4,000 uh, parking spaces and 42% of staff drive to college. I, I just yeah. think that's not sustainable. Like, I, But I've been really No, it's a car park. It is a car park and you can't park it. it. Yeah, absolutely. So like if, if universities are not leading by example, you know, how can how can those with doing research in this area ask governments and others to, to take more drastic steps. I, I think I think it's time we all got a little bit more serious about these things. It's going to be inconvenient, but like, you know, how many more of these reports can we can we talk about on the show? Okay. Let's um let's move in a non don't look up segue to some good news. Um and, and this is this is good news. It's a new um way of screening for cancers using a blood test, Lara. Yeah, it is, um, I suppose, potentially good news that has maybe got some flaws, but it is very exciting. So um, there is a lot of research into looking at screening for cancers with a blood test. So the concept of screening is that you are taking asymptomatic people and you are finding whether or not they have a specific disease. Um, Screening has a huge number of criteria that have to be filled before a screening test is allowed. And it seems a lot more simple than it is. I actually remember learning this in university and there was nine tenets to which a, a screening test had to fill before you could actually utilize it. 
And um, because you don't want false positives, you don't want uh, messing up, filling up the the waiting rooms with. Yeah, you don't. You also can't have a screening test that's unacceptable. So I mean, Mm. if your screening test is you know doing a colonoscopy on every single person in the population, that's not going to (laughs) work. You know, so there's a lot of things that um, go into making a good screening test. So what these doctors have done. Um, So first of all, this is a small pilot study where they've looked at 6,600 people. The NHS are doing this same study in 165,000 people, and those results are due out next year. Um, But all of this is is a pilot study. And they are taking blood from, or they took blood from over 6,000 people, um, and they looked for um, potential markers for cancers. These all people were all over the age of 50, and these were all people who did not have a diagnosis of cancer. Um, they had previously done the study with people who did have a diagnosis of cancer to see if it's it caught the cancer, and it did in about 67% of people. The results are pretty good. In my opinion, they're absolutely miles away from being an acceptable screening oh. test, but they are pretty good. And I think, I genuinely think that within a decade, I'm hoping this will be much more useful and functional. What they found was they looked at, like I said, over 6,600 6, people, and they found... Um, that there was a positive test in 92 people. Everyone else was found to be negative. Um, then, so this is, okay, maybe good, maybe bad. But what we they did then was they actually screened these people and for the, the cancers that they thought they had based on the blood tests. And of the 92, um, only 38% of them actually had cancer. That's completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, it's way too high a number of people to tell potentially have cancer before basically demonstrating that they didn't. But this has a huge amount of potential for the future when it's um, refined and when it becomes more genuinely useful for screening. I'm hoping this is how it'll be done. Thanks, Laura. Our third story is about counting steps, Shane. Yes. Are you a 10,000 steps per day kind of guy? I think I'm so highly strong. I burn all of my energy just through thinking and stressing out. (laughs) We won't go into that. Well, as you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 10,000 steps a day seems to be the sweet point. And this is work from from Sydney uh, from and it's published in JAMA Medicine. Oh, Lara is showing me her screen there. And I, I, I actually for today. Well, it's still pretty good, right? Yeah. I always thought the 10,000 per day thing was rather arbitrary, but it seems that there is some logic to it. And they've found that it's not just the amount of steps you take per day, but perhaps unsurprisingly, it's also the pace at which you take them. So what they did was they went to the UK Biobank. Um, they worked with 78,500 uh, adults between the ages of 40 and 79. They looked at health outcomes after seven years and all of these people were wearing accelerometers on their wrists. So they're wearing smart devices that can, that can count their steps. Uh, they also connected it with health records with consent. And they took out people who had cardiovascular or cancer within the first two years right, uh, right. of this study. And they found that um, for every 2000 steps that you take, right, you get a 8 to 11 percent um, decrease, right, or lowered risk of premature death. So it goes in increments and that goes all the way up to 10,000 steps. Now, I have to stress, this is all correlation. There is no causative part of this at all. It's just that if you take more steps, you're less likely to die uh, prematurely from cardio or cancer. Um, And they saw there was a similar effect for both cardio and cancer. They said 10,000 steps was completely optimum to uh, lowering the risk of dementia by 50%. They said that... 50%? 
yeah, they said even even just close to 4,000 steps is uh, associated with a 25% decreased risk of, um, of dementia. Um, and crucially, they showed that PACE benefits for all outcomes. I have to stress this is correlative, but it's a very, very big number that it's... It's, it's a big it's study, study and it's unsurprising, I suppose. Um, Lara, you're smiling along the the way there. Have you something to nah, say? Look, I mean, you know, everybody knows. I'm actually just laughing because Shane has repeatedly said the word cardio as if that means something. <laughs> I was just really enjoying that. I think he means cardiovascular disease, but I just liked the use of cardio to make you sound cool. I did not know there was a difference. And this is why I should not be allowed to cover the medicine stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to find some humour somewhere, Shane. Uh, finally, uh, Lara, some research into the best way to soothe the baby. Yeah, this is a quick little study. So they, they took 21 infants, so zero to seven months old. I have a nine-month-old baby at home who has only just started sleeping through the night. Um, and it took a long time. Um, and they looked at 21 infants in Japan and Italy, and they wanted to find out the best way to soothe them if they were to be crying during the day or during the night. So they did four things. You could either, or the, the, the mothers could, um, the, the, the um, people who were examining it did not go in. They videoed it. And the mothers were able to either pick up the baby and sit still, pick up the baby and walk around, leave the baby in the cot or put the baby in a moving cot. So essentially a push chair, a buggy, something along those lines. And what they found was the golden way and the, and the golden number was five minutes of walking. So they said, don't just pick up the baby and sit. Don't put the baby in a moving cot. Don't put the baby in their cot. Pick them up for five minutes. And they found that all 21 babies stopped crying every time after they'd been moved around for five minutes. And most of them had fallen asleep. But the key is do not put them back in their cot. You must hold them for another five to eight minutes to allow them to get into a deeper sleep and in they go. Now they stress this is not going to work for everyone. It is not a magic bullet. And they can really say that again. But anyway, look, it's an interesting concept. So if you're out there, you're pulling Try your hair out, your baby won't sleep, carry them around for five minutes, sit until they get into a deeper sleep, pop them back in the cot. And if it works, let us know. <laughs> I think 21 is just a, too small of a number. I used to uh, get the the baby and I put the baby in um, my two hands, the baby's head, and then uh, lie the baby's body along the, the length of my arm down to the elbows. And I would just swing left and right, just up and down and left and right. And I was, I was like, people were calling me the baby. Like I go into weddings and I said, just give me the child. <laughs> and I would you just do this and they would go, who is that man and what the hell is he doing with my child <laughs> but it, but it, it worked really well for me when Sophie was they born put that me technique, that technique and uh, my husband nearly flung her over his shoulder a couple of times he was trying to do it so vigorously but yeah, it did not, actually work yeah 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 just you gotta be gentle with the baby sometimes you don't want to be gentle you always must be gentle with the baby <laughs> Dr. Lara Dungan um, and Dr. Shane Bergen thank you as always <laughs> Now, a recent news talk survey on commuting has found that people are spending longer on their journeys to work since the pandemic. And so all week we've been speaking to transport experts, policymakers, as well as commuters to hear about the issues being faced on a daily basis as we look to get from A to B. But what does the future hold for commuting and for transport in general? Are the likes of Hyperloop, air taxis and automated pods a thing of science fiction or science future? Well, Professor Marcus Enoch is a professor of transport strategy at Loughborough University in the UK. He joins me now. Marcus, if we look back at um, 
you know, where we've come from. In the 1950s, we had very fanciful ideas of where transport might be in 2020, uh, let alone 2022. Uh, are we progressing or are we going backwards when it comes to traffic and transport, do you think? I think up until about 10 years ago, transport hadn't really fundamentally changed for probably 200 years. If you mm. think back um, to the, we've, we got the first buses in Paris, for instance, in the 1820s. We started to see rail travel again in the 1820s in the UK. And, and basically, um, we've had taxis for about um, probably slightly longer. Um, and then we've had private transport, which in the past was horse-drawn transport, and then otherwise people walked. So if you think um, taxis uh, were horse-drawn powered in the 19th century, now they're combustion engine driven. And then um, the same for, for, for buses, they changed from horse-drawn buses to, to petrol uh, diesel buses uh, in the 1920s. But other than sort of um, how they propelled these vehicles, um, essentially we still have the same types of transport as we did 200 years ago. Now that has started to change in about the last 10 years Suddenly, transport is quite sexy um, in terms of, you know, we've seen lots of new investors come into this space. We've seen Uber. That's sort of these shared car models. They're quite different. Shared bike systems, that's a bit different as well. Um, we're also seeing um, more sort of like a video conferencing type technology as well. So the idea that do you actually have to travel or you can actually sort of transport yourself virtually. So those things have only really started to happen in the last 10 years. So I think we're at the moment, we're in a real time of, of like of churn, if you like. Technology is evolving. And yeah, and so that's actually quite exciting. Um, and we've started to see over the last decade, as I say, a shift in how we move around. Um, and that's probably particularly true for things like commuting. So in the UK, we've seen um, commuting as a share of, of the Journey purpose has declined by 12%. Business has declined by 23%. Shopping trips have declined by 17%. Whereas you look at wow. uh, yeah, school-run uh, trips. So more people now are escorting their kids to school by car, for instance, and that is they've gone up by like 20%. Entertainment by 15%. Holiday day trips by 7%. And that's... Um, sort of over the last uh, decade, I think. So so essentially, the, way, the, the reasons why we travel is changing significantly. And then the way we actually travel between um, our jobs is, is kind of maybe that's slower. Do you think that it was inevitable that we would get to this space where cars are everywhere? I mean, why didn't we go with buses when we realised the potential of them? I mean, surely... Even back in the 50s or 30s, when we realized that um, cars were going to be a big thing, surely this population growth and um, mass use of cars was only going to ever end in bottlenecks and back-to-back -back traffic. Yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult question to answer as to why we just followed um, the people. I mean, you could see in the 1920s the problems we were going to get from traffic. Um, if you looked at the United States, for instance, I think there's... There's this thing that the car has always been an aspiration for people, something to achieve. There's been, you know, it's associated with with being um, a man, particularly a very masculine thing often in the past, this idea that, you know, you're not a real man unless you own a car. 
and use a car, um, although actually now I it think... Was, I, I, it was advertising and status and yeah, all yeah. of those things, I suppose, sort of converged yeah. into this into this single use or at least um, single purpose vehicle that isn't particularly flexible and doesn't serve society particularly well. If you're making a personal decision, often the car is individually um, the right choice to make for you as an individually, and certainly at the time, um, taking a car instead of an alternative mode makes sense. So it's a short term and it's an individual, you know, it wins on both those fronts. But from a societal benefit, um, cars are a disaster. And from a, a longer t- medium to long term benefit, cars are a disaster. So they're sort of trading off. And in a sense, if you're if it's individuals making decisions, it's no choice at all. Cars are more flexible. They are immediate. They are, you know, they, they give you far more than what you get on a bus. So let's look into the future then a bit, Marcus, and uh, imagine um, across two lines what might happen into the future, because this is something you focused on. The first being uh, a drive to uh, more dense cities and what, what that, how that might play out, um, or, or people uh, addressing their issues by getting great broadband and staying at home in their rural communities and working that way. Uh, and then the the other side of, of of this conversation about transport, which is automation, uh, and whether or not uh, we are likely to see, you know, driverless cars ferrying us around everywhere, like in the Jetsons. So, what do you see in the crystal ball uh, for the future of transport? In a way, transport is a derived demand. We call it a derived demand. So, transport exists in to serve other other needs to get people to and from activities. And and so and transport is very much dependent on what happens in the wider world. So like you say, so if we move to a world which is higher density, that means more people, more and more people moving to cities, which is happening in many places around the world. It's like, is that in in more advanced economies, is that trend likely to continue or is it not? And so if you look what people seem to want or many people seem to want, um, they seem to want to live in low density suburbs um, where they have a, a nice house with a garden surrounding them and all that kind of thing. And to serve those sorts of um, developments, um, then you potentially are pushed towards modes like the car. If everyone does move instead to high density settlements, um, then public transport becomes far more feasible and far more usable, a better choice, more sustainable choice. And so in a sense, the, the bigger question is, is will society move to a higher density way of living or will it move to a lower density level way of living? And I think one of the key drivers around that is, is what is society and government's attitudes to climate change? If climate change suddenly emerges as the dominant, you know, thing of the age, if, you know, if we start to see um, the climate... Hasn't it already? Yeah, absolutely. So if, if that translates into political action, then then basically the push is that people move to higher density cities. If we move to yeah. higher density cities, then we start to see um, automated trains. We start to see uh, big public transport systems in put into place to, to get everyone around. We start to see this idea of a 15-minute city, which they're promoting in Paris and Barcelona, for instance, mm. where you can walk to, to all the activities that you need to access. You don't actually need to travel very far for longer distances. 
And, I've and heard of this, and I've I've, I've traveled to China where they build these sort of communities where they say, look, yeah. you have everything you need um, in one space. And, and to me, it seemed to completely ignore the fact that most people may not necessarily want that. It may be super convenient. And for the first couple of weeks, you might be great. This is so convenient. <laughs> I have my theater, my park and, uh, you know, my school all within 15 uh, minutes walk. But very quickly, people might get bored of that. I don't think we all want to live in a in a, a tiny micro city, um, you know, that is completely self-sufficient. I mean, surely, uh, you know, the future of, of transport is usually dependent on what people want to do. And people really do want that. Um, they want that private vehicle. They want that sense of space a, a lot of the time. Those who can afford it really want uh, to be able to get in their car and go where they want to go. So does that Absolutely. lead us more towards automation? Well, well, uh, does it lead to automation? No, I think it does. That pushes in the opposite direction. So there's this tension, as we said before, that between what's good for individuals in the immediate future and what's good for society in the longer future. And climate change is probably the big underpinning thing as to which way we go. So, you know, there is a trade-off. As a, as a world, do we just keep living in the now and for individuals and sort of almost unselfish thing? In which case, we go the low density route and the cars and stuff. Or do we go in there, this kind of I am prepared to travel less? You know, and there is evidence that people like to travel for about an hour a day. And depending on what the mode is, depends how far they get. And that leads mm. that does lead us into automation. Because if you have an automated transport future, one of the fears is is that um travel becomes even easier than it is now in a car. And um and people instead of traveling sixty kilometers uh, in an hour in a car and um, with automation maybe they can travel even further and then, so they start to live further away from work and that increases the need for them traveling blah 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 which makes yeah i hadn't thought of that yeah it's a sort of a chicken and egg thing yeah, absolutely so yeah so there's this kind of uh, tension there so yeah automation and um, will it happen um i think it could automation it's a sort of um has made massive progress in some ways in the last sort of 10 15 years um, I think where the length of time to get from now to automation is uncertain. So some people think that um, we could see fully automated cars uh, within five years. Um, some people think we'll never get there. Some people think maybe in 10, 15 years. I think the, the sort of expectation is that sometime in the 2030, we'll start to see fully automated cars. And what, what does that look like from a, from a transport expert's point of view? Does that look like completely automated from a centralized source traffic management where uh, a large centralized computer decides who gets to go when no more traffic lights the the, the you know the city basically yeah. conducts the flow of of traffic due to ai you put in your your destination and it and it it yeah, routes for you is, is that really going to happen well that's one potential future yeah, another one. I mean, that's like this idea of connected cars, where cars potentially talk to each other, and you know, kind of how far you can get, so you can squeeze more cars on the road and things like that. Um, with it, I've been working on that with a team from TCD. We're putting a proposal wow. together at the moment. I think what the car manufacturers want is for every car to have their own sensors and their own things, and be the more disaggregate sort of model. And they they kind of have cars that talk to each other that way. What about the ideas of uh, Elon Musk, his Hyperloop, um, or, or some of these concept designs where people are trying to change how cities work, where 
we see entire road networks traveling above or underground the city, leaving people to walk around these sort of idyllic city centers without the, the burden of traffic. I mean, realistically, can we change our cities that much given all of the work that's, in, that's gone into them so far? I mean, are these sort of pipe dreams or do you think that we could one day see a total radical rethinking of, of how we commute in our cities? Personally, I'm a bit sceptical about most of these sorts of new technologies, but they might happen, who knows. But I'm more interested, actually, in how we could do things with the sea we have already. So, for instance, I think there's there's a possibility that, um, that instead of having hard road surfaces and hard pavement surfaces, actually maybe what we could do is we could make them soft. And that would basically, you know, you think about people falling over, they break their arms or their hips or whatever, older people particularly. And... Um, and that has a big impact on their lives. And so I think we could do, in certain locations, maybe where there's lots of old people, for instance, we could install softer surfaces like we put on playgrounds. So I think we can see a difference in that. I think we can also see a difference in how we use our roads. So I think I would like to see shared spaces. So I don't know if you've ever been to Hanoi in North Vietnam, but that is fantastic because they have this system where one minute all the traffic is in one direction along a road, the next minute it's all coming in the other direction, the next minute you've got loads of cafes, have got uh, sort of tables in the street, um, you've got vendors selling um, you know, pot noodles out of carts, and then it all changes again. And it's all about what does the street need at that particular time? And you're not mm. carving it up, you're not saying this is always for cars in this direction, this is always for cars in that direction. So I, what I'd like to see is, and I mean, to be honest, it is terrifying in Hanoi. But on the other hand, like <laughs> walking along the streets. But the idea, I actually, once you get into it, I actually felt relatively safe and it's quite fluid and it's quite organic. And well, there's definitely really spaces. Yeah, there's definitely spaces in Ireland where traffic during daytime and at peak times is absolutely necessary. But then in the evening, you have all of this space that is barely used for yeah. with, with, with vehicles. Um and yet it could be used for entertainment or for public spaces and have, you know, have cars spend a little bit more time going around because you get through the city much quicker. So that, you know, Absolutely. what you're saying is that there is innovation happening. There, there are ideas happening on a small, slower scale, but, yeah, so but less, the bigger less... stuff is, is harder to be able to predict. Yeah, but I, you know, I so I think you could make m much better use of space and cities generally as well. We build new developments, um, shop, you know, uh, residential developments, huge amounts of concretes that we put into the roads in these things. I don't think we need it. I think you could basically, you know, have sort of almost like a park around the outside and basically say, um, you put your your vehicles there, and then um, and then you kind of walk into the the residential areas. Then you only need. Um, roads that are actually got tiny amount, you know, a little bit of like almost like a carpet. And then when you occasionally need a removal van or a rubbish lorry or whatever to go down that road, then that that sort of smaller, like less impactful um, road layer is, is far more, it's probably enough to manage that. Um, mm. Yeah, just another point about autonomous cars, actually. Um, the big question there is, Will people actually need to own them or want to own an autonomous car like they own a private car at the moment? Or will they be happy to share them like taxis? So like a dial-a-pod kind of arrangement. And depending on how people view owning these pod things, these these driverless cars, that is probably the big the big sort of 
unknown really because if i spoke to a lot of europeans when we first started talking about autonomous cars in about 2014 and all the europeans assumed that no one would need to own a car so you just you know you press a button on your phone and want to turn up in five minutes why own one but then i chatted to some american colleagues the week afterwards at a conference and they were just like oh yeah we'll actually have more vehicles if they're autonomous because you know mop and pop will have one but not just Mop and Pop, Tarquin and Tarquinetta, they're kids who can't own a car at the moment because they're too young. They'll own them as well. So actually there'll be more cars and that make huge potential problems. So it's so this thing about ownership versus sharing is massive for autonomous Fine, cars. Finally, what do we need to do to, to start fixing things now, particularly when it comes to sustainability, but also this concrete jungle we've built um, a lot of this concrete infrastructure is is crumbling, and in America, huge amounts of their infrastructure needs immediate attention. What are the changes we need to make now to make the future of transport more achievable in the long term? Instead of spending fifty billion quid on high speed two, I think the government should have spent fifty billion quid on making the pavements better, the road surfaces and nice the cycling and roads better, yeah, and safer. Cycling better and safer, yeah, absolutely. So I would go, I would start there and do that. Yeah, you know, maybe the solution is staring us straight in the face, and that is just make these things that little bit easier to do, and people might start doing them. Uh, really interesting speaking with you, Marcus Enoch. Thanks for your time. And if you have any thoughts on your commute or how we might make commuting better in the future or today, you can send us a tweet. We're at Newstalk Science and don't forget to use the hashtag MyCommuteNT. All right, Aidan McKelvey is on holidays. Yes, again. And so it's just me uh, to go through some of your comments from last week, or at least comment. Um, we have screened some of the poorer ones out and we are left with just this text from uh, the programme we did on uh, whether or not plants are intelligent. Uh, someone says, having listened to that piece on plants, I'm someone with an open mind about the sensitivity of them and how they grow and thrive much better in groups together as opposed to solo in a corner or in a room as a single plant. Maybe I overthink it, but I feel they don't do well alone. I think there's definitely something more to be explored here in the neurobiology of plants. Well, look, they said animals couldn't be intelligent, and they are. They said AI will never be intelligent, and I'm starting to think it will be one day. Plants, I don't know. I, I'm I'm willing to have an open mind, but there are quite a large number of scientists who are saying, this is stupid. You're moving the goalposts on what we call intelligent. You can't call plants intelligent. It's just different. So, look. You're entitled to your opinion. And if you're open-minded about the intelligence of plants, maybe one day you'll be proved right. It's entirely up to you. You've heard what we what we know so far. Uh, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to Eva Breen, who is producing this week, Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday with an interesting piece with Steve Ostad, who'll be telling us what animals can teach us about living longer I'll see you then. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.